0: All right, let's turn to James chapter four. James chapter four, starting in verse 11. Father, as we go to your word, we ask for your help. I ask for uh, clarity and concision, but especially that your Holy Spirit will speak your words to our hearts. Glorify Christ in our hearts and make us come more alive to you today. Amen. All right. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do it and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. So we're standing here while you're sitting, I'm standing here, but we're gathered here, worshiping Jesus today because of an earth shattering piece of good news that of course we call the gospel, right? The good news, I sum it up like this. God saves sinners by the death, the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. God saves sinners by the life, death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the news that we're here for. That's the whole point, right? But it's not just useful information and it's not just good advice. It's not a suggestion, It's good news. It's an announcement that something has happened. I think this is an N.T. Wright quote. Something has happened after which nothing will ever be the same again. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. And this earth shattering event some 2000 years ago in Jerusalem has rippled throughout the world and throughout history and has proven time and again to be the power of God unto salvation. It's been transforming us from the inside out for thousands of years. And it's been making communities of believers who have such a quality of life, such a joy, sacrificial love, humility, unity, that there's no other explanation for it, but that the news is true. There's a king, and he did something amazing for his people. And it's that gospel event, it's that piece of good news, not just the news itself, but the substance of it, the actual salvation that Jesus wrought on the cross, it's that news which transformed James, the half-brother of Jesus, as well. Because only that kind of good news can explain that fundamental shift in James's relationship to Jesus. We talked about this in in the very first sermon in this series. What could make a sibling go from saying, um, I'm Jesus's brother and Jesus is my brother, right? Uh, To saying, I'm a servant to this, my master. What could change James's perspective from brother to servant, he says in the beginning of his letter, verse one, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Jew was used to being a servant of God. That's nothing new but serving the Lord, the master, Jesus Christ. That's what the good news of Jesus does is it makes us servants of Jesus. Jesus. We know it saves us. We talk about that all the time, but we don't talk a whole lot about the reality that we go from serving one thing to serving a far better master. The gospel makes us servants. It saves us from serving ourselves, the end of which is death, to serving Jesus. And the end of that is eternal life. So of course, Bob Dylan was right you got to serve somebody. And that's what James has been saying throughout this letter. It's, it's what he means when he says friendship with the world and friendship with God, right? We're, we're going to be one or the other. We're either going to be friends of the world or with God. There's no neutral zone. The same is true of being a servant. You will serve somebody. It's going to be Jesus or it's not. Um, so the, I was thinking about servants in the Bible (laughs) uh, and reading the book of Exodus. And this reality, I think, comes into sharp focus there. So Israel, the people of Israel, they're serving Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They are his slaves and they serve Pharaoh to Pharaoh's benefit, don't they? So Pharaoh builds his kingdom on the backs of these people's service. Pharaoh makes himself great at their expense. In Exodus four, God says to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. I never really thought about that until this last week. I always think, you know, Charlton Heston, let my people go. I get that part. But the, in order that statement that comes right after that he may serve me. Free him from serving you, Pharaoh, so that he might serve me. That's what God is saying. So which master then would we rather serve? You know, if Pharaoh, this is always a funny exercise to do. (laughs) If Pharaoh were to rewrite our call to worship that we did this morning from Matthew 11, here's how I think it would read. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will double your workload. Take my yoke upon you and build my kingdom for I am harsh and vengeful and you will die in your toil. For my yoke is heavy and my burden is crushing. But Jesus, the better Lord and master, and I'll read it again because it's the best. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you we're still servants. We have a yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So which do you want to serve? Those are the only two options. Jesus, who is Lord and Christ, proved himself to be the kind of master that we want to serve. And he didn't, do us, he didn't prove that by making us die for him. He did it by dying for us. So we get the idea of building a kingdom on the back of slaves. We've seen it historically again and again and again. But what kind of king builds a kingdom by giving his own life for his people who reject and despise him and rebel against him? In Acts chapter two, Peter's preaching to the Jews about the resurrection of Jesus. And he, he basically says that because Jesus laid down his life for us, he's proved worthy to be Lord, master. The resurrection of Jesus was like God's exclamation point and signature on the document that declares Jesus to be Lord. In Acts two thirty-six says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's what makes Jesus worthy. Unlike Pharaoh or the devil, this master does not win us over by threats and cruelty. He wins us over by costly love. So in our passage this morning, James isn't just giving us good advice on how to live. He's telling us what it looks like to live under the lordship of Jesus. It's about serving our master. And the prince of this world, our enemy, the devil, has infused two great lies into the atmosphere that we live in. Two lies that we all have to um, be aware of, maybe fortify ourselves against, maybe repent of. And so we're gonna dive into those two lies and the truth from James today. Um, James 4, 11 through 17 is essentially an entire worldview packed into seven verses. Um, so we're gonna look at these two lies as the main points. Lie number one, let's just get into it, okay? So this is verses 11 and 12. If you've got your Bibles, look at those two verses. Lie number one, that the world will tell you is that right and wrong are not absolute, Okay. Um, What I mean is morality is flexible. What's right for you might not be right for me. What's true for you might not be true for the other person. We tend to personalize right and wrong or democratize right and wrong. So this is clear when you think about any given hot topic, right now, the, the things that people get really heated about on Twitter, for instance. Um, so, okay, let's think about the, one of the top level ones in my mind, homosexuality. Right now, the world says it's perfectly fine to engage in homosexual behavior, um, even that it's a moral good. That is the message that... <laughs> We are swimming in and our children are now hearing through children's cartoons. That is the message. 50 years ago, that was not the case. 100 years ago, it was not the case. What happened? What's the standard of morality, right? The the lie is evident when we see that there is no, for society, for the world, there's no rock solid, immovable thing to which you can hold up right and wrong and always know. We have democratized morality and whatever's right and wrong now, whatever thing is worth getting angry about and fighting on social media about is the thing that the most of us or the loudest of us agree is right and wrong. Or second example, think about modesty, Um, both the way you dress or the opulence with which you live. Right now, modesty from both of those angles is entirely out of vogue. And it doesn't take very long. That was, I didn't mean that pun, but it was there. It doesn't take very long flipping through vogue or watching Netflix or walking down the street to understand that modesty is out. It's not, it's, it's not a social virtue. But the Victorian era, modesty was a moral issue for them just a hundred years ago. So which is it? Again, we've personalized or democratized our morality and it's not steady. It'll flex and flow depending on what we, the people decide is right and what is wrong. God is right. That's right, William. The first lie that the world tells us then is that morality is not absolute. And of course, that is not the worldview of the Bible, James says, there is one lawgiver and judge. There is a lawgiver, which means there is a person who is himself the standard for right and wrong. And he is unchanging, something we can lean on. The problem is that we tend to functionally um, believe this lie. Maybe not cognitively with our minds, but at least with our actions or our words. So James tells us that we believe this lie, especially in our speech. He puts his finger on two particular ways. Let's read verses 11 through 12 again. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, so here are the two ways, essentially, that we functionally believe this lie that morality is not absolute. Firstly, we hold people to our standards. We speak against one another. We make ourselves the arbiters of right and wrong and the standard of morality. So instead of being concerned with what God says is right and wrong, we start to hold people up to ourselves as if, well, as if we're God. They don't think like I think. They don't dress like I dress. They don't have the same conviction that I have. Therefore, I'm going to speak against that person. Ultimately, we are making ourselves the lawgiver when we do that. As if our way or the highway. And when we do that, it just leads to tribalism and getting siloed off with people who think just like us. Um, But that's the, the sort of social repercussions aren't the problem. The problem is that actually acting like we're the lawgiver puts us in opposition to God. It puts us on the throne of the lawgiver. And that's a scary thing. So that's the first thing we do is we hold people up to our standards. The second thing is, a little bit more subtle, it it might actually be that we're trying to hold people to God's standards. We see what's right and wrong in scripture and it seems clear to us and we want our brother or sister to adhere to what we see in the Bible. And so we don't become their lawgiver, we become their judge. If the one we are speaking against though is in Christ, then they already have a judge. And This judge gives mercy and sends his Holy Spirit, not his Holy Church, to sanctify his people. (laughs) We don't get to be the ones who apply the laws of God to the people of God and dispense judgments from the throne of God. So, of course, when I'm talking about speaking against people, speaking evil against people, we're not saying... Um, gentle exhortation, speaking the truth in love. We're not talking about those things. We're not talking about church discipline and we're not talking about exercising discernment and good judgment, right? In our thinking. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about slander, gossip, lies, harsh criticism, these things. When we're speaking against a person, it means we're not speaking for a person. And those things are off the table for us. When we wield our tongues like that against each other, we're setting ourselves in opposition to the true judge. So those are the ways that we believe the lie um, that James put his finger on. But there are good news. There are good news. There is good news for those of us who might be stinging a little bit like me from that indictment. And the good news, of course, comes into sharp focus where all the good news in the Bible comes into focus. It's at the cross. When we see our lawgiver and our judge hanging on a Roman execution rack instead of us, bearing the wrath of God, the just wrath of God for the sins that we did, though he was perfect. When we see that, then two things become very clear. The first is that there is an absolute standard for right and wrong. The wages of sin is death. It's so inflexible, so certain, so immovable and steady that God held himself to that standard and received the punishment for the wrongs that we did against him. So in other words, there is a lawgiver And he is deeply, unsearchably good. We can lean on his standard of right and wrong. We can set our standard. We can set our clocks to him. So that's the first thing that's very clear at the cross. There is absolute morality. Second, there is a judge. And he is deeply, unsearchably merciful. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, which Ray brought up earlier this week, and I'm grateful for that. It says that we're children of wrath. We were doing whatever we wanted, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus <laughs> we deserved judgment but mercy triumphs over judgment and he doesn't do you notice the so that in the last sentence that's my favorite so that Why did God save you? So that he can lavish his love on you for the rest of eternity. That's why. That's the judge that we have. So the answer then to the lie that morality is not absolute is this. Jesus is Lord of the law. Jesus is Lord of the law. James is interacting with this, the the same passage that the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself comes from originally in Leviticus 19. Um, Leviticus 19 verse 16 says, uh, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Isn't that a weird way to end those two commands? Don't do this and don't do this, I'm the Lord. I think it should be italicized. I am the Lord, not you. You don't get to be the lawgiver. You don't get to be the judge. I am the Lord. That's the truth to oppose the lie. And it's just the best news imaginable. Jesus is the Lord. The one who doesn't build his kingdom on the backs of slaves, but dies for his servants. He is the Lord. So that's the first lie and the truth to fight it, that Jesus is Lord of the law. Second lie, this is the next chunk from 13 to 17 if you look there. The second lie that the world would have us believe for which we also need the Lordship of Christ is this, you are absolute, you're in control, you shape your life, your goals are the ones that matter, Your own self-expression of yourself and who you are is your penultimate achievement in life, being true to yourself. You are absolute. Let's read verses 13 to 17. Um, We're gonna listen for three ways that we easily embrace the lie that we're in control, okay? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit So there's these three sort of illusions of control that lead us into believing this particular lie. And the first one is that we know what tomorrow will bring. The future is predictable. I'm a smart guy, can figure things out. The second one is that we deny that our life is a mist, temporary, short-lived. And third, we just assume that we will live. We assume we're going to wake up tomorrow morning and the next day. So making plans, to summarize, without considering the lordship of Jesus is saying with our hearts that I know what tomorrow will bring. It's to act like our mortal life will just go on forever. And it's to claim that we have control of our very lives, our existence. To put it another way, living our lives without taking the lordship of Jesus into account is claiming to be omniscient, eternal, and sovereign. Those are God's qualities. No wonder, James says, your boast is an arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We thought we were just making plans. Move to this city, make some money, start a business, get a job. We thought we were just making plans. But we're boasting by making ourselves out to be God. So in the last section that we just talked about, James is talking about sins of commission. That's just things you do, right? You speak against a brother, you judge a sister. These are commission. But here he's speaking about sins of omission, what we don't do, the sin of what we don't do. And it's so insidious that we just don't even tend to notice it at all. So here's the, the sin of omission then the right thing to do, which we know but fail to do, and thus is sin, is we forget to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. It's as simple as that. Now, of course, the indictment that James is making is not against making plans, saying today or tomorrow, we're gonna go here or go there and do this or that. Plans are good things. Read the book of Proverbs. It's always telling you to plan, right? Proverbs tells us that the heart of man plans his way. It's not wrong but the Lord directs his path. So planning our steps in humility is a very wise thing to do. So the problem then is not planning. The problem is living like we're Lord, like we are Lord of life. Making plans without acknowledging the sovereignty of God, James calls evil. It's to put ourselves on the throne of God. Now, of course, This is in the speech ethic, another speech ethic section of James. He's talking about the use of our tongue, but he's not just saying that we need to add magic words if the Lord wills, right? So there you can baptize all of your plans. Just say, if the Lord wills, we'll go and do this or that. We do not need to add the words if the Lord wills to our mouths. We need to add the words if the Lord wills to our hearts. James is always making this point. When he's talking about the tongue, he's talking about where the tongue comes from. Remember, the tongue has a source and it's the heart. So when we don't acknowledge the sovereignty of God with our mouths, it reveals that we don't submit to the sovereignty of God in our hearts. And that's where the problem is. Um, By the way, this passage is not, talking about trying to uncover the will of God, right? Um, That's probably a whole other discussion for a whole other day. But it would be easy to think that, you know, today or tomorrow I'll go into this and this town and make such a profit and spend some time there. Or do I need to discern if the Lord wants me to go to this other town or make less profit or do a different business venture? It's good to seek the Lord's will and direction in your plans, That's great. It's just not what James is talking about. He's not saying, please try to find the specific will of God for your life. We already know what that is, right? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. We know the will of God is to lift the lowly, love each other, seek unity, humility, praise Jesus. That's not hard. The issue isn't what is the will of God. The issue is nothing happens that God doesn't will. And not believing that, not loving that. That's the problem. We live and move at the pleasure of God. And let's just sit in that moment. Like, let's really think about that. Nothing happens outside the will of God. Nothing. Our very existence is contingent on the will of the Lord. Our plans for the future are contingent on the will of the Lord. Making plans without thinking about the Lordship of Jesus is like a three-year-old making plans with their best friend to go to Disneyland. Like, okay, but if your parents aren't gonna take you, you're not going, right? And we do it all the time. I do it all the time. So nothing happens outside the will of God. And this isn't a new teaching. It's all over the Bible. So for instance, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Matthew 10, 29 through 30, Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Proverbs 16.33, the lot... Is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Or Proverbs sixteen nine, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So we're not getting into a free will debate. That's not the point. We're not getting into an origin of evil problem of evil debate. That's not the point. I just want us to grapple with the reality of what the Bible teaches that nothing in this world happens without at some level the will of God. Whether that level is permissive will or decretive will or whatever labels you want to put on it, God wills it. Actually, I don't just want us to grapple with that reality, I want us to love it. I think if we stop short of loving it, we're stopping short of the humility that Jesus is asking for. So let's get back to the idea of making plans then. How do we make plans in humility? in a way that honors God and acknowledges with our hearts and tongues that Jesus is the Lord of life. How do we stop pretending to be God and start doing that? Here's how. To make plans under the Lordship of Jesus, we must learn to love the Lordship of Jesus. We have to learn to love Jesus for his Lordship. If we love Jesus, but resent his lordship, his claims on us, his control over us, then we're not really in love with Jesus because Jesus is Lord. It's the great confession of the Christian faith. Maybe the beauty of the gospel hasn't really yet gripped our hearts if we don't come to love that. The reality that someone is in complete control of your life will either terrify you or comfort you and which will reveal what you think about god and what you're believing about god because if you see god as something like a tyrant or unpredictable or untrustworthy etc then this is a really scary reality it's a terrifying teaching who would want that but if you look at the cross and you see Jesus, the Lord of life, the one with the name above every name to whom every knee will bow. You see that Lord of life giving up his life for you. Then you can start to love the teaching. You can find comfort here instead of fear because the one who has absolute control over our lives is unfathomably good. And he put his own life on the line for your life. What more could we ask of him to prove himself? So here's why I love this truth, that Jesus is in total control of everything. Uh, it all comes back to Romans 8 for me. Romans eight twenty eight says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things for good for you. That's why I love it. In other words, if you submit humbly to the lordship of Jesus, there is nothing that happens to you in this life that you won't one day be able to look back at and say, worth it. All things for good for you. The good that you will receive will far outweigh the suffering you endured because Jesus is Lord. That's what the lordship of Jesus does for us. Think about Joseph, right? Back at Genesis 37-ish to 50. Uh, Joseph was betrayed, sold into slavery by his brothers. And, you know, fast forward a couple decades, when all is said and done, their dad dies and the brothers are terrified that Joseph is going to take his revenge on them after all these years for their betrayal. So they come to him cowering, asking forgiveness. And Joseph says, am I in the seat of God? Then he says this in verse 20 of chapter 50, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Do you you get that? That one action, the betrayal had two levels of (laughs) meant. You meant and God meant. And that is true of everything in our lives. We mean, and God means. The will of God is, when we're trying to seek the will of the Lord, what we really want is for what we mean to line up with what he means. Right? That's the goal. But God will do what he wants. And he's good. And that's good news. (laughs) So no matter how much the enemy means evil toward us, underneath the actions, underneath our circumstances is another meant at work, another will, the will of the Lord. And he means it for good for you. So that's why I love the doctrine. And if we can learn to love the doctrine, first of all, it's something the Holy Spirit does. You can't think your way there. The Spirit does that. So if your heart warms to that, thank him for that gift. That's wisdom from above. And if we can learn to love the Lordship of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord of life, making plans stops to be anxiety-ridden and distressing and frustrating. And it starts to become a delight. It's like everything's an adventure. This was a really timely text for me to study this week. Um, I'm sure you know, planting a church is nothing if not making plans. Lots and lots of plans. Now, what if we outgrow the meeting space? Where will we go then? Do we do two services? Do we try to find a new building? Do we try to build a building? How will we pay for that? How will we become financially autonomous? How will, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All sorts of plans. How will we do home groups? How will we do men's and women's ministry next year? The list goes on and we are making plans. Don't get me wrong. We're not just not, I'm not being passive, um, but we're seeking to do so humbly in full submission to Jesus as the Lord of life. And it's actually a pleasure because we love the fact of Jesus's Lordship. So we're asking God to help us keep Psalm one in the forefront of our minds, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I don't want to waste our time by laboring in vain with you. We want the Lord to build the house. And he is. He has been. I mean, you guys, all of you are such a gift from the Lord and an answer to prayer. You have no idea. None. Becca and I asked the Lord for the favor when we began this work of not having us be recruiters, trying to, you know, tapping people on the shoulder, please join our church. It's gonna be a lot of fun. We said, Lord, will you just bring the people you want? And he has, and he still is. So in a sense, I didn't plan any of this. I made a lot of plans. (laughs) Nathan and I have made loads of plans, right? But it wasn't this we were actually going to be launching like starting church services next month in Hendersonville. That was the plan. And the Lord had us start in April here in the Madison area. That was his plan. It's so much better that way. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, but God does. So we can walk in confidence knowing he's not caught off guard. His plans are not thwarted. It's all gonna be all right all things for good for you. We are just here for a little while. We're a mist, vanishes at dawn, but God and his purposes are eternal. And by his grace, we get to do something eternal. This this church, like Christ's church might not exist in 50 years or 10 years or next week. We exist at the Lord's pleasure. He can shut the doors or he can make the church explode with growth and vitality. It's his church. But what we do here week in and week out will ripple into eternity because of the Lordship of Christ. He is eternal. And we don't control our lives. Remember James says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He says, before you even make plans, remember that your very life is in the hands of Jesus. If the Lord wills, we will live. So we don't control that. But God brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. We live physically and in Christ at the pleasure of God, which means he gets all the glory And we can lean into that. He's got a perfect track record. As a certain pastor at Emmanuel used to say, he's a professional. You can trust him. So let's praise Jesus for his lordship. Let's learn to love his lordship. And if you don't, that's okay. He wins our hearts with love over time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am very, very glad that you are in charge of the universe. Thank you for proving yourself to be good. That word's not big enough to contain what you are. Thank you for being so good. We praise you that we can trust you, that we don't have to be afraid of any kind of dark corners or skeletons in your closet. You've proved yourself. You've won us over by love. And now you're in charge of everything and we could not be happier about it. So we submit to you in humility. We are your servants and we're really glad to be. We love you. We praise you and thank you. Amen.